Hi y'all, welcome back to PG Keen. I'm Vivian Liddell and this is my podcast. It's been a crazy busy start to this year and to the school year for those of us who live and die by the semester system. So I apologize for the podcast dragging its feet a little bit in 2019, but better late than never, right? For this episode, episode 22, I had the pleasure of meeting up with Karina Sephora in her studio at the Goat Farm Arts Center. The Goat Farm is a sprawling arts complex in an old gin factory in Atlanta's West Side Arts District. It has a lot of artist studios, over 300 according to Wikipedia, hosts all sorts of performances and events, and also actually has live animals, thus the goat in Goat Farm, and there was some free-roaming chickens around from what I could see as well. It's a lively place, and there was a lot going on on the Saturday when I was there. I got to Sephora's studio around 5 p.m. after a day of gallery hopping, and she was just wrapping up a welding workshop when I arrived. Sephora calls herself an artist of metals and more on her website. Her main studio space is filled with gorgeous metalwork and blacksmith tools, anvils, hammers, pliers of all sorts, and welding stations. When I walked in, there was a faint, fiery smell, and she and her students were doing some work while some soothing music played in the background. She has an office off to the side of this main space where we chatted, and if you continue walking through the office, there's another smaller space for her painting studio. Sephora has won multiple awards for her work, which can be found on permanent display at the Martin Luther King National Historic Site and the Atlanta Botanical Gardens. She currently has a solo show of her work at Atlanta's Mason Fine Art called Between the Deep Blue Sea and the Universe, And she also curated a group exhibition of her fellow goat farm artists that is accompanying her work there at Mason. We had a great chat sitting in her office, which is lined with awards and articles on her practice. I started our conversation out by asking her about the gender dynamics in her line of work. We got this like blacksmithing guild certificate here. Like how many? The naked guy? No, where? Where's the naked guy? Oh, on the very top. (laughs) (laughs) what is that from is that from a different i was looking at the one that had the little cute little gold badge i actually believe it or not did not notice the naked man yeah that's not like me yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) naked guy come on you gotta love it when you win an award um they were for some sculptures that i made and it was through this affiliate it was the it was a metals association (laughs) national um metals association uh that i was a member of and um I think I had submitted images to a magazine, and then I I, I won an award, and that came in the mail. <laughs> so historically, you know, blacksmithing is you know predominantly um, males, yeah. and um, 
you know, when I opened my studio in 97, um, there was this study that was done and, uh, they said there were approximately 50 women that had professional blacksmith slash sculpture studios in the U S in the U S and how many blacksmiths are there? I mean, do you have any idea? Well, you know, at the time, you know, according to like there's a national organization that's called Artist Blacksmith Association of North America, and they say there were approximately like 2,000 members. So, of like, that. there's one woman per state, basically. Could be. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but it could be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there was a TV show that did um, a special on me, and they they actually came back with the the study information. Mm. I knew it was a minority, but I didn't know exactly like the statistics, right? But you have students that are um, seems like. There was like a majority. Male and female. Yeah, there was like a good mixture yep. in here. So yeah. do you think that's changing? Oh, yeah. That was 20, that was over 20 years ago, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, things have definitely changed. And, you know, and a lot of it has to do with people like teaching classes, right? There was my generation where there were a series of, you know, I was so excited when I found one woman blacksmith that I could study with mm-hmm. um, at the Penland School. Her name was Elizabeth Brim. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then, you know, I've just made it a practice to be very inclusive. Um, For a little while, I would teach, like, I'm in the middle of a three-day welding workshop. And Mm -hmm. I say welding because people know what that is, but I also teach blacksmithing inside of it and for the alliteration. But for a little while, I would teach them um, and call them women's welding workshops. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to create an environment that, you know, women felt comfortable to come and learn. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, I teach a lot of classes and I'm perfectly happy teaching men as well. So recently I've opened it up um, to, I just call them welding workshops. <laughs> and they are predominantly women that come and take um, take the workshop. Interesting. But we usually do have a couple of men. Sometimes, so today you got to see two different slices, right? Uh-huh. Last Wednesday I had, uh, there's a train. Yeah. Last Wednesday I had a welding workshop. Where I just, it's a three hour workshop and I teach people how to weld. We do gas welding and, you know, which is oxygen and acetylene and MIG welding. And that's how I was taught by my sculpture professor mm-hmm. in undergraduate at Mass College of Art. So I teach a, a one evening workshop and there was, in that workshop, there were, there was a couple celebrating their six year an, or, or maybe 11 year anniversary. Although six year is actually steel. So oftentimes I'll have people <laughs> come through it either buy a piece or, you know, buy a class or something for a six-year anniversary. So we had a couple, and then we had one other woman. So there were two women, and I think there were four guys in that class. And then this weekend, I'm teaching a three-day workshop. It's like a retreat where people get to come and come with their own idea. And myself and an assistant, we essentially facilitate that happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, So inside this class, I have... um, one woman, and she's the mother of a, a friend of mine who actually does blacksmithing, and she was on the show Forged in Fire, my mm-hmm. friend, and her and her sisters got this as a gift for their mom because she's been saying she wants to learn how to weld, and she's like, I don't have the patience, you know? So she's in the class. Um, I have one student who's a 12-year-old, and her father contacted me a number of months ago, and he said that last year when school ended, all the kids said, you know, they asked them, what do you want to do when you grow up? And kids were like, well, I want to be a scientist. Oh, I want to be a actor. I want to be a lawyer or, you know, whatever things I said. And she said, I want to be a welder. (laughs) 
and she keeps talking about it. So like evidently they bought her a welder, a welding machine for oh, Christmas, wow. right? Um, they're going to bring it tomorrow so I can help them to, you know, work with her. Uh-huh. They're, 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 they're open to it. Right. And yeah. I learned to weld when I was five. Wow. Now, not as like a profession or anything. It's just, I followed my dad wherever he went and <clears throat> my parents are from New York city. They moved to through macrobiotic foods and Michiokushi, they moved to Boston and they opened up a, a restaurant, um, macrobiotic restaurant, but they couldn't get the organic food, mm-hmm. vegetables and whatnot. So they moved, it was always my dad's dream to live off the land. Mm-hmm. So they moved to New Hampshire and, and started a farm. And my dad at one point, you know, he had a little metal shop where he could build things. You know, of course he has an education from Yale in theater and set design, uh. but he used that as a building, right, mm-hmm. to, to, know, to, to work with any building projects. So I learned about welding when I was about five. Mm. So really, I just learned how to be comfortable in the environment. So you were born out on the land, not, out on the not land, in yeah. New York. You were already in that, they were in that phase yeah. of life yeah. when yeah. they had you. I've got a, little, a lot of New York in me. You know, people <laughs> yeah. are oftentimes like, are you from New York? You know, yeah, I we have that. a lot of relatives. And I spent my life going back and forth from living in the countryside in New Hampshire, um, also in Maine. And then uh, our family in New York. And then I went to college in Boston, Massachusetts College of Art. How was that? So you went for sculpture? I did a dual major with sculpture and metalsmithing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in high school, I always knew I wanted to be an artist all growing up. And in high school, I did painting and printmaking. Um, my teachers would submit my work for these Boston Globe Scholastic Art Awards. And I won a number of awards just for my you know, two-dimensional works, but I also learned how to do jewelry silversmithing, and I loved how I would make a drawing, I could bend the metal, and then soldering, and soldering was like, oh, it came back to welding when I was a little kid, right, from five years old to teenager. You know, I'd make things out of clay, I'd work with ceramics, and I'd get all into it, and I'd spend days making a pot, and fire it, and glaze it, and my cat would knock it off the shelf, or I'd drop it, and it was shattered, you know, and that wasn't fun. Mm -hmm. So I like the permanence of metal. Yeah. Um, and so you went, it's interesting that you said your dad had this fine arts background, but then he was building, I think I read he built boats. Is that correct? Is that a, you know, I, I oftentimes merge both of my fathers. So my, my parents separated when I was young. Oh, okay. So my dad had the, um, fine arts background, um, from Yale. Okay. My stepdad, um, he was a boat builder. Okay. His father, my, my step-grandfather, he was a, a sea captain for the Dutch royalty and was in the Royal Dutch Navy. Very interesting. Right? And yeah. so, but there were always people building things around me. You know, whether it was at my dad's where he had the farm and would be building a log splitter, right? Mm-hmm. Or at my stepdad's, my stepdad and mom moved to Maine. Okay. They'd be building boats in the yard. Right. And for a little over a decade, my artwork consisted, you know, essentially of uh, very nautical themed work. I used the boat as a as a vehicle uh, for whatever message it was that I was conveying. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of the work had a very nautical theme. And when I say nautical, I use that as um, like symbolism for whatever storytelling that I chose some of the work was about family memory and personal history. Some of the work was a little more socio-political. You know, mm-hmm. some some well, for a period of time, I made a lot of work that had to do with uh, reading stories about the refugee experience, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and what what might that journey be? Right. Sometimes the work had to do with uh, 
a lot of the earlier work had to do with looking at the Vikings mm-hmm. and how they would send their dead to the next world mm-hmm. uh, spiritually, right? Through right. this voyage across the water. What's that Jim Jarmusch film with the Johnny Depp? He goes out in the boat mm-hmm, into mm-hmm. the next world. Mm-hmm. Which one is that? I can't remember the name. I'd have to get back to you. <laughs> I love that film. I think I have a copy of it. But okay. I'm not great with names. Yeah. Um, and what about your mom? Was she an artist? Or? Yeah, my mom was actually, I would say, like a bead artist. Okay. Um, I have some of, her, uh, some of her work here. And she was a bead artist and a poet and a writer and an adventurer and backpacker and, and, and an artist with food. You know, she was an amazing, amazing uh, cook. Not like, um, like a chef, not a chef in a restaurant, but had studied so much, mostly through the macrobiotic. Mm-hmm. So her her artistic endeavors, I would say the the main one would be her writing, and then the other main one would be her um, her beadwork. But then you could also look at her gardens. You know, she was amazing flower gardens. They called her the Dahlia Queen. Uh-huh. Wow, sounds like you have a very creative family. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have um, I have uh, two sisters, and I had two brothers. Um, one of my brothers passed away. Um, I would say he was the most creative. He um, he went to um, he also was in theater um, and set design and lighting. And he was a lighting designer in New York City and uh, a woodworker and a musician. Wow. He was um, one that I was very close with. And he passed away unexpectedly uh, due to heart failure uh, about three going on four years ago, three and a half years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what about so you were in Boston. Mm hmm. And here we are in Atlanta. I'm looking at the timeline here, and I see you were in Boston. That was in the 90s. How long did you stay there after school? I was in Boston for five years, from 1990 to 95. Okay. And um, in art school at Massachusetts College of Art. Five of the happiest years of my life, I, I think, oftentimes. And it was just such an adventure, you mm-hmm. know. And I loved living in a metropolitan city. And Did you have any family there, or you just kind of... It was just you. It was just me. Yeah. And I moved there really for for the school, um, Massachusetts College of Art. That was the college that I, I selected. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in very rural New Hampshire. You know, we had a dirt driveway off of a dirt road and um, a log house that my dad built. You know, it was solar and wood heated. And, um, and um, we had a, a number of acres all around it, field and forest. We grew pretty much all of our own vegetables and... Um, our family was also like really involved with Native American uh, spirituality. We had a uh, Lakota Sioux medicine family that uh, adopted my dad and our whole family. Mm-hmm. Adopted not like they raised us, but adopted us into their right. Um, and so we had a lot of ceremony that we we did on our property, on our land, and um, sweat lodges that were built there. And a cer- we, our garage was turned into a ceremony house. <laughs> So I had a lot of that experience, and some of that is influential um, in some of the work that's in the exhibition as well, some of those experiences. But then you ended up in the big city. In the big city. And so, like, there I am in, like, rural New Hampshire, you know, growing food. Um, But we always had that family in New York City, and I loved going to museums. I knew I was going to be an artist, and I wanted to have – I wanted to be able to just go to a lecture, or right. go to a museum or study, you know, and I can remember my first year of art school in Boston. Um, I actually lived in um, a dorm, right, in the building. It was right on Huntington Ave and the T, the you know, the train was yep. like right outside the window and you crossed the street and there was a school. And most of my life I was a good, 
half hour to 45 minutes car ride away from almost anything I did, except for my cousins and our family farm that was two miles away, right? Mm -hmm. And it was like I was on an island. And so going to the city was such an adventure. And there were times that it was like, God, there's so much noise. Like, I just want the quiet of nature, mm -hmm. right? But then I, I loved, um, I can remember my, my first year, we had a, uh, it's like an art criticism class. And we were talking about NEA funding and Robert Maplethorpe and um, um, what's that called? Censorship. Mm -hmm. And we had a discussion and then we literally like <clears throat> left the classroom, got on the train, went down to the Institute of Contemporary Art and we saw the first exhibition of Robert Maplethorpe's where they sort of started to rope off areas and nice. say only go beyond this. So it was um, not conceptual what was happening in the art world. It was really like all around me. It's right there whole exhibition of Frida Kahlo's work at the Institute of Contemporary Art, you know, got to touch the paintings because my friends were <laughs> curators and, you know, art handlers there, oh my gosh, I you love know, that. and um, it was just so lively. You know, I could go to MIT and listen to lectures. Um, Noam Chomsky, I remember really getting into, there was the, I don't remember what war it was right now. It was, it was over oil. It was the, um, the war that we were having in the 90s. What was that? The um, Oh, yeah, the Gulf War. Gulf War. Thank yeah. you. The Gulf War. <laughs> yeah, we were having the Gulf War right then. And so it was like, you know, it was like so... I loved going to Harvard if I felt like it for a talk or, right. you know, MIT or, um, you know, we had some great music venues, you know, I remember uh, Jazzmataz, sort of a, <laughs> like hip hop and jazz merged uh -huh. together. You know, you could ride your bike everywhere. <clears throat> you know, so I just loved... Like being able to have all of that and have the 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 school had amazing facilities mm -hmm. and we had visiting artists that came in and we also had a program where we would go to um, this place in Maine like in the middle of nowhere right an arts an art center in the middle of nowhere on an island that was where I first learned blacksmithing oh nice yeah that was ninety one. So um, my friends all called me the queen of the forge, uh -huh. right? Our sculpture studios were open until I think it was midnight and I'd be there till midnight, you know, with this one other peer of mine. And um, I loved just having those facilities and being able to work as long as I wanted to and use all that equipment. And um, so what happened when you graduated? Well, I made a crown um, out of steel. It's oh in the gosh. other room. Oh, my gosh. I've got to see um, that. Because they said, you know, queen of the forge. Uh -huh. And it was an art school, so everyone sort of hammed up our graduation. And I wore a cape and a crown instead of a cap and a gown. Oh, my gosh. And that was great. And I think it was maybe before I graduated, I had a really good friend. Uh, she was British. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> she was moving to... Um, Atlanta to the south, right? Uh -huh. And so I went on a road trip with her. So why did she want to move to the south? I'm curious. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, she was English, as I mentioned, you uh -huh. know, from England. And, you know, had this concept of the south and, you know, the music. There was a lot of great music that was coming from here. Right. And she was a teacher and she was a very specialized type of teacher. She was a behavior disorder mm -hmm. teacher. She thought there would be plenty kids. of work here. <laughs> she got a job. She got a job here <laughs> in Roswell, actually. Uh -huh. And so um, so I came with her as a road trip. Like, I've always loved road trips. I love adventure. I mean, I had studied about the south when I was in high school mostly through like the civil rights movement and the trail of tears. Those were two things that was like my concept of the South, right? right. It was through that historic research that I found so intriguing. You know, little did I know after moving here one day that I would actually like build a, a major piece for the 
King Historic Center, Martin Luther King Historic Center. But she she came here to visit, and so or no, she she had come to visit, and then she was moving here, and so I helped her move with the moving truck, and then looked up people. I would this is how I was when I was in my twenties is I'd look up the phone book, right, and I'd find people because I was so into blacksmithing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. And I was like, this is it. You know, this is so amazing to take metal and heat it up and form it. So I, uh, I would look up in the white pages under blacksmith and then I'd call everyone that I could find, which is only a small handful. And it was pretty much like, hi, my name is Karina, you know, and I've been studying um, sculpture and blacksmithing. And I noticed that that's something that you do. Could I come visit your studio? You know, and then once I'd get to the studio, perfect strangers, you know, kind of, I think they call that cold calling. Right. Um, and, uh, but I was pretty determined, you know, and I knew that when I got out of school, I wanted to work with people. My plan really back then in the, in the mid nineties was to move, move someplace, Georgia, right. Work with people for two years, um, doing my own journeyman apprenticeship program. And then I was going to move to the West coast. Okay. Right. So I've been here a lot of years, more than two. (laughs) And, um, but I did, I, I set up some kind of like internships um, with different people, uh, one person, you know, operations. And at one time I actually worked in a large scale like company as a welder. Mm-hmm. I had to take a drug test and a welding test. And once I got hired, um, they'd x-ray everything that I made. It wasn't art, you know, x-ray but I, it. they'd Why x-ray, they x-ray, they'd x-ray it? the welds because um, it was for high pressure situations. So it was a real, oh. it was industry, you know, working inside to of industry. To make sure it was precision. Precision and no air bubbles. Okay. So I did that, but I, you know, again, I didn't want to do this as a job. I wanted to do it as a training, you know, and I knew I wanted to build large sculptures and I wanted to learn like, well, how do they do it in industry? You know, not like that would be my life career, but because I was in an art that had an art form, um, that has an industrial aspect to it, you know, I wanted to have that as a, a tool in my tool belt. Right. So you knew you, if you encountered one of those welders, yeah. <laughs> or I'd know like if I was welding something and, and building something that it really right. was going to you know not fall apart. Right? right. And I learned in school how to weld properly. And that's the same techniques when I teach welding classes of my own. Um, and, and in that company, actually, I was the um, first and only woman that was ever hired as a welder. There were a little over 200 employees and had been wow. open about 15 years at that time. Did you um, I'm sure you encountered a lot of sexism on the job. When was that? That was like... Oh, that was like 96, around 96. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Just working with all men all the time. Yeah, I mean, growing up, I was always... I think the term people use is like tomboy. You know what I mean? That that was me too. I got that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I have a very feminine side, Um, especially when I was younger. I think I really... Like, I still have my welding helmet, and I would put these skull stickers on it, you know, Uh because I... I feel like I thought that made me look a little tougher, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, little punk rock. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was um, it was definitely experience, you know. Um, they told me that, you know, wearing a tank top wasn't OSHA approved and that it was like a distraction to the other workers because it was hot in the summer, you know, so I'd wear like a welding shirt with just a tank top underneath it. So, but, you know, I've kind of always had this, 
belief about who I am and what I do that was really cultivated by my family, which was like, Karina, you can do whatever you want as long as you set your mind to it. Right. Regardless of, you know, whether you're a woman or it's a, you know, traditional role that a woman would play or, you know, you can be an artist if you set your mind to it. So, you know, like my first day of art school, they sat us all down and they said 1% of art school students are going to go on to make a living practicing what they study once they're out of school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for the last 20, 25 years, I've made a living with my hands. You're the 1%. Yeah. And when, yeah. You, when they said that to you, did you already know you were like, I'm that 1%? I'm gonna well, do that. I knew I wasn't a trust fund kid. Right. Right. I knew I didn't have like, <clears throat> you know, my parents weren't going to, you know, like lay out the, you know, the path with here's all the things. But you they know? were very supportive. Like, I mean, yeah, for they you were to be supportive. able to, yeah. to say like, I'm going to be an artist, like, that took me a good 20 years to be able to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the way I feel about being a woman and working in industry is I have all the rights, right? Right. We had everything that happened inside of the feminist movement, you know, back in the day, <clears throat> you know, it's like, I get to live the life that I live as a privilege, right? Because of the people who fought to have women's rights. And so I've got those rights. I can vote. I can drive a car, I can, you know, I can do all the things, right? Right. And if I choose to work in industry, I can work in industry. And so I have that. And it's not something like I'm angry about and I feel like I have to prove a point about. And I have it that it's my right. Mm-hmm. Like it's my right to be able to, you know, have all the heavy duty equipment that I have and, and create whatever it is that I want to create. <clears throat> it doesn't, doesn't bother you to, I mean... Like just the the talk, you know. Like, well, no, no, no. I mean, well, bother me versus like, do I have the right? Like, I, right. like the the basis is I have the right to do it, right? right. I have the right to be, you know, an, an awesome sculptor, and I've always wanted to be thought of as like an awesome sculptor or an amazing sculptor or a great artist, mm-hmm. more so than she's a great artist that's a woman. No, you don't want that, right? Because. And, 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 you know, and at the same time, like, I totally get I'm a woman and I can do some really great work. Right. And I really like to support other women in being able to, you know, exercise that right. You know, right. now that being said, you know, I've had plenty of experiences inside of industry, whether it was like that welding shop I worked at or, you know, one time I built this piece and it was 3000 pounds and we, we had a, a company um, that was a crane operating company that we, that the, the client, it was a commission for some private clients. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have a real engineer side. I'm going to plan out a project and, you know, deal with structure and weight and, you know, all the plans down to the details of how we're going to install something. Mm -hmm. Right. So I met with the president of the crane company and we, we looked at the site and we had this very well manicured driveway, you know, with an S curve and we had the, the piece that was 10 foot by 20 foot, weighed 3,000 pounds. And then we had to deal with whatever permits to move that piece to the location. And what do we need a boom truck? Do we need a flatbed? You know, all that kind of stuff. Right. You know, and inside of that, you know, I met with the president of the crane company. So they, so they sent the, um, you know, the... Uh, the boom truck operator and a flatbed and the flatbed was about 20 feet longer than we had agreed upon, mm-hmm. you know, and they're like, Hey, little lady, 
you know, we can handle this. We can handle this. Well, really, you know, we had set out a plan and something other than the plan happened. Right. You know, so I have to deal with that, you know, I'm the one that's, you know, I'm the one that's in charge of this piece, right? And I'm the one that's, you know, looking after my client's property, right? Right. Like my collectors, you know, with their well-manicured driveway with stones and a waterfall and all that kind of thing. Right. So it was, I remember that being like very stressful because I didn't have that they got my communication or really heard my voice, right? right? Eventually we finally did, you know, but it was a little bit of like, hey, little lady, we, we've got this, we know what we're doing, right? You know, and there was this giant flatbed and there was a guy that was like enormous, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, eventually we really did get it sorted out, you know, what we were going to do. We moved the piece to an abandoned site. We lifted it with the boom truck because there's certain laws, like you can't ride down the highway. We had to ride down the highway on the flatbed, Mm -hmm. and we had the boom truck to lift it off the flatbed and lift it over a three-story house and then place the piece, right? So, but we had to get up that driveway, you know, but we had to drive, you know, like 45 minutes or so to the site. So eventually we went to an abandoned site. We lifted the piece off the boom with the boom truck and put it on the back. Now you can't ride down the highway with it, but they rode two blocks up to, you know, where the site was and they could get the the boom truck up there and they just parked the the flatbed. But there was that period of time where I I remember getting in the car and being like really stressed and calling my boyfriend and being like, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. Nobody's listening to me, (laughs) you know, but eventually, you know, I calmed down. I said what I had to say and we, we got it all sorted out, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, maybe if I look different or if I was a different person, maybe I might've been listened to differently. I don't know. Right. But thank goodness we got it sorted out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I talked to a lot of people, so I was in painting, which I always think of painting as a man's world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, um, then I thought, well, it seems like it would be much worse (laughs) blacksmithing and, and welding than, than painting. Yeah. I mean, there's the stuff that happens and, you know, I think early on in life, I really chose like, this isn't like my fight, you right. know, I can remember being in grad school and there was a, another woman that was in sculpture and, and she was like really pissed off. You know, she was pissed off about a lot of stuff and mm. a lot of her art was about being pissed off. Right. And, and I have to look at it and I say like, is there a deeper message that I want to communicate beyond like, I'm pissed off that I'm a woman and I get treated a particular way, this, that or the other. Like, what if... I live by example, right? Right. What if I do what I do because I have every right to, but right? But I think you also celebrate that, that. You know, you had that childhood where you were told that that was your right. Right. And a lot of people don't have that. That's true. So I think uh, some of us that are pissed off, right? <laughs> we, you know, maybe didn't have that experience in yeah. childhood. Like I know yeah. a lot of women. I'm not, uh, I wouldn't say I'm that pissed off personally, but, you know, you know I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, so you were here and you were doing these apprenticeships, I guess you would call them. Mm-hmm. And then when did you, so now you have, what's going on? You have your own business, you have your own studio. Are you teaching? Are you teaching just in the for 90s? yourself? Yeah. In the 90s? Mm-hmm. Oh, so in the 90s, man, I was like hell on wheels, you know. Um, <clears throat> I was like practicing martial arts. I was like super muscular. I was super is this, strong. Is this when you met my friend Marlink? Marling. Yeah, that I work with. Oh, that's up in... Um, in UNG. He's oh, always yeah. known you for a really long, long time. Long time, yeah. 
I think it was the early 2000s. Okay. I'm pretty sure that I met him. Yeah, yeah. He when came you said you open. were hell on wheels, I thought well, maybe that's the. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, like I have a side to me that's pretty fearless. You know what I mean? But I, I, I feel like back in that time period, it was like. You know, I was really so I worked with other people for about two years. Mm -hmm. And I, I when I first moved to Georgia, I lived up near Lake Lanier in a mm -hmm. log house on 12 acres. Okay. And my shop was like a tarp out back. That's where I had the forge. I had a forge that I built. So I worked in Atlanta in Castleberry Hill, actually, for this old blacksmith guy. Um, and I didn't work for him originally. I had these other people that I worked for, but I was trying to work for this guy. Okay. And when I say trying to, like, he was one of the people I found in the phone book, you know, <laughs> and there was a different guy that I had set up working with. But he, in the time that I had my last year of school, you know, set up these apprenticeships or, you know, journey, you know, you know, apprenticeship type things and then moved to Georgia. This guy had a back injury, a divorce, and um, we'll just say the word like got screwed on a job. Mm -hmm. Right. He didn't get paid and he did a lot of work. And he decided to get out of the trade, get out of this. And I wanted to learn the old school blacksmithing stuff, right? Like I knew I wanted to create contemporary art, but I wanted to have that language of the old, um, like ancient um, ways of working with metal, if right. that makes any sense. Yeah. I knew I always wanted to create contemporary sculpture, you know, that was about now, but I wanted to have that language under my belt. And so in that time, so I'd visit this guy that had the shop in Castleberry and um, I'd visit him and he'd say, well, you're clearly skilled. You've got talent. I'd hire you, but I don't have enough projects to, you know, pay for somebody else to come work with me. But I heard that he would if I didn't hear any of the rest of it. And he said, <laughs> come back next week. Maybe I'll have some more work. So, you know, the guy that I wanted to work with, he had gone out of business I worked with this shop right in Midtown. I don't know if you knew the Rio Mall. It's not here anymore, but it's, um, I'm trying to think of the landmarks. A lot of them have gotten like knocked down. There was the Wachovia building. It was all marble. Um, the Abbey. There's a church there that turned into a nightclub called the Abbey, but it was like on 10th and Piedmont around there. Okay. So I worked in this old warehouse um, with this Italian designer and I was their blacksmith and I'd make all the handles basically. Right. And they had, you know, it was really not such a great setup. I didn't love being there, but I liked the people I worked with and I lived out, you know, 45 minutes away. And I had a 1979 F1 Ford F-150 pickup uh -huh. truck that I could, I could change out parts in and I had this big Ford steel scorpion on the hood. Remember the skulls and the, uh -huh. I had to look tough. Uh -huh. So, um, <laughs> So that was that was like kind of, and I worked for a couple different people, but I really wanted to work for this old blacksmith guy in Castlebury, and he said I'd hire you if I had this extra work. So come back next week. So I'd go back every week, and I'd say, "Hi, I'm back. Do you have some work for me yet?" And he says he find I'm kind of persistent, pretty much. <laughs> and he said that um, he said, "Well, you know, why don't you come back next week, and we'll we'll have some work for you." And he said he didn't think that. I would ever go away. He thought he was better off just getting some more work and hiring me to come work with him because I clearly wasn't going away, right? Right. Because I, I mean, I heard a no in there somewhere, but mostly I said, you know, you're talented, you've got great skills, I'd love to teach you, you'd be helpful in the shop if. Right. I didn't hear the no. Right. So I try not to be annoying with that persistence, but maybe it's annoying sometimes, but maybe it works out. Yeah. So I worked there, and while working at that shop, um, 
I built some of my own equipment. He would have me work with him, but then on the stuff that he was doing, I'd have to sign his name, you know, on the things that I was doing, which bothered me. Um, but he'd let me use his shop afterwards. So I built um, a forge, a coal forge for my shop. I built this little tool that I still have in the shop. There's a little foot pedal. And then I started getting commissions from people. And that was exciting because I could make more money and I could learn how to do things. He'd give me a little, you know, pointers, but I could work after hours for a few, few hours um, before I went back home. And, um, and so I started to have some collectors around this time. And, uh, you know, and, and that was good. And I remember I had this one collector who became a benefactor for me. And she would say, you know, Karina, well, I mean, I met her, let's back up when I was at that Italian designer, Mm -hmm. you know, place, she came looking for this guy that had taken a deposit on a project to do for her, and then gone off to Mexico and never come back. Mm -hmm. And so they said, well, you know, maybe Karina might want to do that project. So she introduced me, they introduced me, Gladney Cooper was Mm -hmm. her name. She's out in um, Mountain Park. So Gladney hired me to make one piece for her home, you know. And I was into making things that were sculptural, but they they still had a function. You know, right. I saw that that was a good path in terms of that 1% making a living. I was like, if I can make something that someone kind of needs, you know what I mean? Right. Then that'll work, right? And still cultivating, you know, my own sculpture along the way. But I thought that's a way that I can support, you know, all those tools and equipment out there, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Right. So I thought if I can make some work that people really need, right, and they're going to like the law of supply and demand, then I can help support a studio and then keep cultivating my work, right, my own work that comes from me. And so Gladney would have me make one piece and then she'd have me make another piece. And around this time when I was working in Castlebury, I remember I built one piece and then she said, I've got this beautiful stained glass door. Could you build me a door that goes with that? right? That's very sculptural, but works with this stained glass, you know, and it was this beautiful, you know, sunburst kind of, you know, kind of art deco looking, all these circles. And um, so I made the piece for her. And my way of being was someone would say, can you do this? And I'd say, sure. And then I'd figure out how I was going to do it. (laughs) Right. So I'm building this door. And I said, listen, Gladney, I went to fit up the frame and then build everything inside of that. And then I said, listen, Gladney, I'm sorry this is taking so long. You know, I work for these two other people, and then I do my own work, you know, in the evenings and the weekends, and I'm just sorry it's taking me a while. And she says, you know, you're so talented. You should get your own workshop and and create your own work on your own schedule. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. And I was so nerdy. I pulled out, you know, my list. I said, but I need all this stuff. You know, I had a list of each tool that I needed. You know, I needed a drill press and I needed a, you know, a, you know, a bigger welder and I needed, you know, like all the things. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, well, what would all that stuff cost you? And I did some rough calculations and I said, it was a few thousand dollars. And she went inside to go write me a check for the work I was doing for her, you know, for my midpoint, you know, payment. And then she gave me this other check for a few thousand dollars. And she said, listen, Quit working for those other people. Get your own place set up. You're you're too talented to be doing other people's work. And I was like, okay. She said, this is a no interest loan. You pay me back when you when you can. Amazing. So I was like, hey, benefactor, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that went on for you know for a, a little while. Um, Did you pay her back? 
Oh yeah. And it was great. You know, I mean, I remember feeling so proud. I sat there with my bookkeeper cause that, you know, and it wasn't that year or anything. It was a couple years later, but right. I had moved into the city It had a, a little workshop. And then I moved to this big industrial workshop on um, Bishop street. I mean, on, um, in the, in the West side, I had a little workshop on Bishop street, two bay garage. Um, and in that one actually like someone broke in and they stole everything I had. Right. But I noticed every bad thing that happened, something great would happen out of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, to get back to Gladney for a minute before I talk about that workshop, I had moved to this next workshop um, at the Metropolitan. They used to call it um, something else. Candler. Candler. It was like storage space and industrial. But, you know, and at that time, Radcliffe Bailey was one of my neighbors. Um, Daniel Roney was there. Um, there's some really great artists and there were guys that refurbished Mack trucks. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? We were all just side by side, (laughs) you know, but I remember, you know, sitting down with my bookkeeper and I was like, you know what? I have this lady that, that gave me this loan years ago. I was like, I'm, I've got all this extra money right now because I've got these big commissions, big projects happening. I want to pay her back. And I remember inviting her to come over and, and it was really great just to give her a check and be like, thank you for doing that. You got me going, you know? It was almost like someone believed in me. It was, yeah, right. it was the cash, right? But it was like, yeah, someone believes me. Like, I'm just going to take a risk, you know? Like, that meant a lot. Yeah, that's amazing. But, um... So when did you end up going back to get your MFA at Georgia State? You know, it was six years after um, undergrad. So I completed my undergrad in Boston, 95. I moved to Atlanta um, between 95 and 96. And then in... Um, and then I worked with other people for two years. 97, I, I stopped working for other people, timeline, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and opened up my own studio. I'd worked with six other people throughout that time. Never longer than six months, I set up a little program for myself. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> and then I was kind of going through like a, a little bit of, I'll just say like a funky time. Like I was engaged to get married. Um, and I was realizing it really wasn't a good match. Mm-hmm. And um, a girlfriend of mine said, listen, I'm going to this iron pour at Georgia State. You want to come? And we'd had bronze pours where I was in undergrad, you know, but I'd never actually been to an iron pour. So we went and I was like, wow, this is cool. All these people working together. And at this point, I had had multiple studio assistants. I had offices and other people that worked, you know, for me or with me. Um, But I kind of missed that energy of working side by side with people and that creative energy. And I was going through a lot of life changes, right? I was like kind of contemplating breaking off this engagement and, you know, like maybe life's looking a little different. And I'd had success, you know, financially, but I wanted to get back into that space of like kind of creating just from my um, like my heart and soul, right? right? I got real busy with the commissions. Now you can say that's great because I had that goal of being able to make a living, you know, with my hands, paid back the benefactor. And, um, but I wanted to create work in another way. I wanted to create work that was more conceptual. I wanted to be creating work that told a story, right? I wanted to have one idea and then create another piece that had an idea that linked that idea. You know, I wanted to be in that space. So I went down for that iron pour, and um, I guess that was 2001, you know, December 2001. It must have been December 2001. And um, and I just loved the energy that was there and, and, and 
and I like being with people. And they said, oh, well, you can come back to do so-and-so. You know, they invited me to come back and do something. I don't remember what. Come back for another iron pour. And then I, I don't remember if they asked me or if I – I love doing visiting artist programs. During that whole, you know, um, six years of working for, you know, working um, for myself and in that two years inside of it of working with other people, you know, I would do visiting artist lectures at colleges and universities, um, for internationally, um, for metalworking programs. Like I love a side that's like teaching and sharing information mm-hmm. and inspiring other people. Right. And then there was all that's always in the background, like that 1%, like how to be a professional as right. an artist, like how to make a living as an artist, how to, how to translate working with your hands, how to translate coming up with ideas, um, and whatever, you know, side of that working and, um, negotiating and, you know, you know, making a project happen and making a contract and not getting screwed on a project, you know, all that stuff. Like I felt like it was important to share that with other people, other artists, other creative people. So I always really enjoyed doing visiting. I'd, I'd, I'd schedule myself for different, different programs, different universities, um, different arts organizations, you know, nationally and internationally to, um, to share knowledge and information. So when I went back to that, back to that iron pour and I sort of got involved with that, community at Georgia State, which really was very community. You know, George Beasley was there and Michael Morell and there were some other people like Donald Locke, you know. There's a whole collection of his work at the High Museum now. And he used to just be sort of like a person that worked in that studio, in that mm-hmm. studio, right? And George really cultivated that. George Beasley really cultivated that, that it was a space that people from the community, different generations as well as students, right? And it's very, very European, right? Mm-hmm. He's affiliated with a Scottish sculpture workshop in Scotland, right? And there'll be, you know, Sir Hamish, right? He's nobility, but he comes over to do a bronze pour every once in a while and, and piddles, right? Makes little cool things because he wants to, right? So I, um, so they asked me to come do a visiting artist program, and I just loved it. And they loved me, and I was like, this is cool. And I was like, I think I'm going to take a night class. You know, I could do that. I could take a night class, you know? So I took a, a class. I don't remember. I, I can't remember if it was David Landis or Kyle Dillahay who was teaching it. It was one of those two, right? And they had been graduate students there, but completed. But then they, they taught some classes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then in, around that time, I said, you know, I think I'm going to go to grad school. And I was like, you know, I always had that plan to move to the West Coast. So there I am. I'm in California. I'm on the campus of, you know, I don't know, I was like in Santa Barbara or um, maybe I was in um, um, Oakland, you know, at the uh, or San Francisco. I was on like a, a tour. Of, I picked out college campuses that had good sculpture programs. Mm-hmm. And my mom was with me and uh, one of my good friends. And we were on a campus and I got a phone call and they were like, Karina, you know, we want it from someone at Georgia State. We want you to come to this event. I was like, oh, I'm looking at these graduate schools out on the West Coast. I think I'm going to move out here. And they're like, what? And then I get this other phone call. It was from George Beasley. He says, "Uh, Karina. And it's like, yeah. He's like, this is George Beasley. He says, "Um, from the sculpture program at Georgia State University. And uh, we understand you're thinking about going to grad school. And um, we understand you're looking at schools in California. Well, we want you to come to Georgia State, and um, we'd like you to we'd like to give you a um, we'd like to uh, invite you to come and uh, be a student and invite you to teach a class while you're here, and uh, uh, we'll pay you about five hundred bucks a month, and you don't have to pay any tuition. You know, they call it a full ride. Right. He said you have something um, that's really valuable. You know, have life experience. You know, both as being a an artist and um, a business person, and we want to have you in the in this environment here. 
And so I looked around and I'm like, yeah, I've always wanted to live on the West Coast, but <clears throat> you know, I'm kind of nameless and faceless out here. Nobody's inviting me to pay me to go to grad school, <laughs> right. right? As much as I, I love that environment and kind of thought process in the West Coast, whether it's about food or politics or what, you know, I'm very much aligned with uh, a blue state versus a red state, right? But I thought, you know, he's asking me to come to graduate school here and uh, wants me to come in and have a meeting and, and you know, lay out all the details. And so I thought, I think I'll go check that out. Yeah. So that was pretty much how it happened. So Atlanta's been very good to you. Atl- Atlanta has been very good to me. <laughs> you know, I've done some really amazing um, projects here and um, had some, been really built community, you know. And uh, there's a nine-foot sculpture sitting outside, actually, that's sort of about this being torn, right, about um, putting roots in. It's a nine-foot ladder. I work with ladders a lot in my work, and they, mm-hmm. the meanings oftentimes shift, right, mm-hmm. depending on what's happening in life. And um, George, actually, right before I went to grad school, I had um, I'd applied to have a, a solo show at iDrum when it was in the silver ceiling Mm -hmm. space downtown. And I'd been to a few art shows there and they reminded me of the real cool art shows I'd go to in Boston and the South end and lofts. And, you know, you know, and I I really was like, yeah, this is cool. They've got bands, you know, and the ceilings leaking, you know, beer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And um, I was like, I could have a show here. And I was like, I'm ready to have a solo show. So I got accepted for the solo show. And I remember they met with me, um, Bill Spence, he was on the board and he said, Karina, we've got good news and we've got some other news. And I was like, all right, Bill, give it to me. Give me all the news. <laughs> he says, well, we've moved. Idra- well, first of all, you got accepted to have a solo show. You know, the, the board unanimously, you know, wants you wants to show your work and we're excited to see what you create for your show here. He says, the other news is we've moved locations. It was about six times as big. And I, he took me on a tour. And I just remember this giant, big, vast space. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to have a solo show here. And so I said, he said, now you could, if you want, do a duo show. So I had a real best friend, um, real dear friend of mine who people, you know, are both of our ex-boyfriends had introduced us because they were like, you girls are so similar. We both worked in industry. We're women. She was more in cast iron and I was more in, you know, forged steel, welded steel, mixed metals. And, uh, and so we created, we'd have a, so we created a friendship, right? Julie Ward, Julie Ann Ward. So she was a artist in residence in, at Sloss in Birmingham. And so we created having a solo show. I mean, a duo show together. That's cool. Yeah. So, since then, you've stayed in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. You graduated with your MFA. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. having solo shows now. You've moved into into the real fine art arena. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, what is your deal now? You still have your own business. Yeah. You clearly have students, but you're not affiliated with the school at all. Uh, I do have some. I you know I almost always maintained like a like. I will just call it like an adjunct affiliation with the university. I mean, there's been a couple gaps where with I Georgia haven't. State. No, no, different no, ones. Oh, different ones. Different okay. ones. I've been on a, you know, South, you know, the South uh, Georgia tour. Oh, okay. Um, but, um, and there's been times, there's been gaps where I haven't had an, a university affiliation. But uh, let's see. Well, back up, you know, like when I graduated, I um, I had my, you know, my, my, my uh, thesis committee, when I was forming my thesis committee at Georgia State, 
the professor said, you know, you've been out of school, you've had life experience, you know, get somebody on your committee that's not, you know what I mean, a, a professor. Mm-hmm. And so I asked Annette Cohn-Skelton at first, and she was a little bit busy, but she said she would have loved to. Um, she'd given me a Best in Show award on, on one of my sculptures. And so then I thought, well, I always have these interesting conversations with Jerry Cullum. Why don't I ask him? So he was on my thesis committee. Oh, wow. So that was pretty cool. That was pretty interesting. It was interesting because it brought another flavor, uh-huh. right, that wasn't just not just, but it wasn't from like only the education right? and, you know, sculptor. I also had a video, video, um, I was doing video when I was in grad school. So I had my video teacher, um, Nancy Floyd. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had my thesis show at a gallery. Ironically, actually when Mason fine art was Mason Muir, I had my thesis show there and, uh, there's a lot of installation and video and large scale sculptures I actually built a wall <clears throat> It was reviewed by like three newspapers, Kathy Fox, um, Jerry Cullum also wrote a a piece about it, and somebody else for the Creative Loafing. So it was in the AJC, the Creative Loafing, and um, I forget some other publication. But at any rate, so we did that. And then I was out of school, and I got hired at UGA, actually in Athens. So I, um, I, and I remember being in my final meeting, and they said to me, you know, because I was really kind of excited to be a professor. And, you know, back in the day, it was like, get your MFA, you can be a professor, right? Right, right. (laughs) But it was getting more and more competitive. So I felt, I got invited to apply um, to be sabbatical replacement at UGA. And I remember going for my final interview, you know, I had to do all the submitting and all that kind of thing. And I went to my final interview and they were like, well, wait, you haven't graduated yet? (laughs) And we're like signing the paperwork. They're like, you better graduate. You know what I mean? So, you know, that was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a lot of commuting, you know, driving back and forth to to Athens. Um, But I really loved it, you know, and I do have that side of me that's, you know, I always keep a studio practice and I enjoy being able to pass on some information or inspire or intrigue or, um, you know, poke at the next generation. So let's talk a second. Um, we, we should wrap it up here yeah, so we can get the show. this opening. <laughs> so let's talk about the show okay, um, cool. that you have up yeah. um, at Mason. And they're, Mason, what is it called now? Mason, Mason Fine Art. Fine Art. Mm-hmm. Mason, mm-hmm. it's like a really long name. I was just over there today. Yeah. Mason something Fine Art and Event Space. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I checked out the show. Mm-hmm. I read a cup. I read your... Uh, Jerry Cullum, your friend Jerry Cullum, has also written a, a review of it. I mm-hmm. read his review, mm-hmm. and then you were also in Atlanta Magazine. So I got a little bit of background mm-hmm. um, already that is about your mother's death. Yeah. that That's the main theme of the show. Did yeah. you guys see Kirsten, Kristen Mitchell's show? Yeah, yeah. Was parent, speaking of... Parent. Parent death. Deceased parents, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. You know, I was talking to Kirsten a little while ago. Yeah, um, we, uh, we actually had... Uh, her and a couple other friends, we had dinner at New Year's, and she said, you know, it's like something about being selfish, you know, um, about dealing with her father's death, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for me, it's, uh, it's like there's an aspect that's about my own personal journey, right? And, and my relationship with my mom, you know, like, since her passing, and then there's an aspect of the exhibition that my intention is really to have this space where there's access for other people. So it's about cancer 
the you know the cancer cells um, are evident in the pieces in a couple of the pieces. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So initially, you know, really in the space. So I worked on that work over the course of a year, right? Only one year. One year. Yes. Yeah. Pretty impressive. There that's were some pieces I edited huge, out. <laughs> that's a huge space. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I should show you the um, the model I made of the space. Oh. Before we yeah. complete our conversation. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so there were a lot of conversations that I had with Mark in order to secure that space and, you know, dates and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, he'd been asking me to have an exhibition um, for a little while, and we'd been in conversation. Um, he really wanted me to show this work that I've been doing with um, gun transformations, which I'll be showing a little later this spring. And at one point, you know, we looked at me exhibiting that work alongside this work, and although both bodies of work have to do with transformation and we'll just say transcendence, um, it really wasn't a fit, you know, visually and conceptually to, to show that body of work with this body of work. No. Right. <laughs> so so when the gun transformation, just so people know, you're like taking a gun that already exists and then modifying, adding to it, right? taking it apart taking and it apart. recreating into something new. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, so this body of work, you know, in that statement, it really does talk about, and in, in the work with Jerry and in the um, article in Atlanta Magazine, and, and by the way, that article from Jerry came out before the show came out. Mm. So it was sort of a, a preview more than a review, right? Mm. And uh, so my mother had cancer for about five, six years Right. And right before she got cancer, we did a lot of like personal work and completely recreated our relationship with each other. Mm. You know, my dad raised me. My mom didn't. And growing up, it was always one of those relationships that was like I wanted to have but didn't know how to have. And through uh, a series of my own personal work that I did. Right. I got how to have a new conversation with her about who we were for each other. So we were maybe like six months before she got diagnosed with cancer. We had pretty much recreated our relationship with each other. You know, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of letting things go and, um, and having fun and creating a friendship. Right. So there was that transformation that we had. Um, and we had this intensely close relationship once we had laid that ground where anything could be said. Right. And, so I'll remember, I remember when she called me up and she said, you know what? I just got back from the doctors and I figured out why. I was in an airport in Denver on my way to do a lecture, visiting artist lecture in um, Wyoming mm -hmm. for a new sculpture program there. And um, she's like, I've got cancer. And we're like, really? You know, and so then it was about really like about six, almost seven, seven years really of, of her Dealing with the fact that she had cancer, and right? Where was she geographically? She, oh, she lived in New Mexico, right? Okay. So, you know, here I am. I'm in the same time zone, at least, when I'm giving this lecture. So I adjusted my stay in Wyoming, you know, much to the chagrin of my hosts, um, and took a little tiny plane. It was like one set of seats on either side, that mm -hmm. kind of tiny plane yeah. that, like, flaps in the wind, you know, um, over and, and went with her. And we went for some of her first checkups where they literally, like, drilled into her bones and took core samples to test, right? And I remember how tender and how vulnerable that space was of her being where she is and, and the closeness that we had created inside of our relationship, right, of trusting each other and loving each other. And that was sort of how it got going. 
And then, you know, over most of our lifetime, we saw each other one uncomfortable visit, right, from age age five or six until, you know, I was uh, 40, you know, at that time. So about 35 years, right, 34 years. We'd have one uncomfortable visit a year, mm-hmm. pretty much, right? And so moving forward, once we had let everything go inside our relationship, we went to Bali together, right? She'd been asking me for 25 years to go to Bali, right? We, the last time she ever went, we got to go together, right? When she was sick, we, I got to be there with her. When we, you know, we'd see each other five times a year, right? Now, sometimes because she had gotten sick, I would get on an airplane and fly to the ICU. I'd fly in and take a shuttle right to the ICU. You know, inside of that space, actually right before she got sick, I even had a birthday party for her, right? To celebrate a public celebration of this new relationship we had. So we had all that really positive going on. And right. inside of that, sometimes we'd visit each other five times a year. And it was it was like, for me, there was like this, such a celebration of having this relationship I'd wanted my whole life, right? Like this closeness and this bond to like, wow, my mom's got this like ailment, right? This sickness, this disease. Um, and towards the end uh, of those years of her being sick, you know, it really took her over. She had all kinds of chemo she'd try. And about six months before she passed, you know, the doc, it was bone marrow cancer. The mm-hmm. doctor said, you know, we don't understand why you're actually still alive. None of these chemos are working and we're going to, you know, take you off of all of them. And we don't know how much longer you have. So my mom was one of those, like, she was like a backpacker, a hiker, like deep forest, you know, week long canoe trip kind of people. She loved Thanksgiving. So she created, I'm going to have this Thanksgiving. I'm going to have all my kids. I'm going to have my grandkids. She even had a stepdaughter at, at a point from a relationship, you know, and, he, and her, her baby, you know. So she had this big Thanksgiving, and that was her, her big celebration of, of all of us, right? We'd also had a birthday party for her earlier in September that year, and we all knew it was the last. And she read the Mary Oliver poem, mm-hmm. right? with the last few lines that say, I'd like to be a bride married in, in life, you know, I'd like to be a bride married to amazement. Um, anyhow, so all that stuff happened. And so, and she was inside of all that, I'm just going to say kind of ready to not be on pain medication and not be in the pain she was in physically. She was also a Sufi and there are certain beliefs inside of being a Sufi, like the poet, um, um, just thought of his, forgot of his name all of a sudden. Rumi. Mm-hmm. Rumi is a, a Sufi, right? So there's certain philosophies that talk about um, like that transition to the next world of as like a marriage or as a the beginning of a new life, right? In and less of like an ending, but the beginning of a new cycle. Right. So the she had that conversation going, and it was really like time for us to catch up to where she was. So when she did, you know, she died six months after we all were together um, at at Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And I was actually in Mexico and flew to New Mexico. And um, we had created what she wanted for her ceremonies and her rituals, you know, around her burial. Very non-traditional, not, no cemetery or anything. She's buried on the side of a mountain at the Llama Foundation, you know. And... Um, so in that time, even though we were all really kind of prepared, there's still like that space of loss, right? Mm-hmm. And there's that space of, you know, completion in a sense and in mourning. And so I can remember being with her, 
you know, in that sense of the burial, right? And there were certain instances, the last piece that you see in the room as you're leaving, the, the sort of figurative piece. Mm -hmm. That piece is a very ceremonial, um, very spiritual piece, you know, having to do with a couple moments in time. You know, one, the morning before she passed, where this raven visited me in, in Mexico, while in Mexico. And... Um, and then another moment in that space where we literally figuratively, you know, physically lowered her, I, you know, her body into the ground with ropes. Like I was one of the people who lowered her. And um, I mentioned earlier in life, I've always belonged to a sweat lodge community. And I, I have a sweat lodge community here um, in North Georgia. And there's a, a space in that ceremony where we're getting ready to light the fire where the stones are all in there. And we make a prayer to the four directions and a prayer to the earth and um, to the sky and to ourselves, to our hearts, right, inside of ourselves. And so after we had lowered her, I had this moment where I would just, like, raise my arms. And in that space, and I was wearing this um, jacket, this very ceremonial jacket that belonged to her, mm -hmm. I had this feeling like, like I was a conduit, you know, like there was a, a space of spirit, we'll just say, right, for lack of better words, that just moved through me. And so that piece is very much about those two moments in time of that raven visiting and of um, that moment. And it's really about being in that space between the worlds, right? And so for me, you know, exhibiting this work was very, I would say like vulnerable, right? Of sharing this, <clears throat> these aspects, you know, and looking back at the beginning of the year, a lot of the work, I, I got curious, what does a cancer cell look like? Mm -hmm. Visually, as and, and I started painting, and I would paint, I looked it up and I saw that it was like a circle within a circle, like these little amoebas. And those became sort of like a mark making for me. Right. And a space of meditation. So to how, draw those. have you painted before a lot? Or? Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, I, I painted a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And then... Um, when I say younger, like all the way in high school, right? And I and, and done printmaking and, and that kind of um, work. But I had had this urge for a few years to work more abstractly. Um, you know, I can draw, I can do, you know, like can, I can render, I can do scale drawings, very engineered drawings. You know, I can draw something very perfectly. But I wanted to get to this place where I had this looseness and this uh, emotive space that was symbolic and abstract um, but still there was a an undercurrent or layers of meanings right or layers even of paints you know because um, I was surprised when I went to the show that it, it wasn't was all like, sculpture it right it wasn't very sculptural it was very much more 2d yeah installation there's yeah. a couple of installations you yeah. know yeah and so you know physically in that space I felt um, very soft you know, um, in that space of mourning, I felt very soft, like I was crying a lot, for instance, and I felt very emotional. And, you know, there's something, there's like an energy when you're working with metal and fire and tools and planning and engineering and structure. And, you know, that's very masculine, yeah. you know, and, you know, my, my dad did a lot of raising me of, of the raising of me, right. And I'm very comfortable in that space of being very masculine. Um, but in this space of mourning, I, I really had to nurture and cultivate that very feminine side of me that was softer. And, um, 
And so painting was something that I just started doing, you know, and I started doing these paintings and my mom writing was something and she'd lead these writing groups. So I had this basket that had all these words and she'd have people pick the words, you know, and, and write from them. And so I sort of used those as a vehicle, um, of communication, right? Like with her, right? In the, in, you know, that sort of intuitive, uh, you know, spiritual space of not knowing and listening and looking. And, and, and so I would pick a, a couple of words. And once I got health, and that's where I got curious, mm. you know, and oceans of love, I got that as another word, right? And there were these little tickets. And so I started painting and I said, I wonder what a cancer cell looks like. And I just started painting them. And another little, aspect of this um the day that my mom passed was the uh it was the super moon it was a full moon and it was a super moon december 3rd 2017 and there's something about that space now she lived in taos new mexico she had a backyard that looked out over a mesa you know looked out over the sangre de cristo mountains and an evening could easily look like you know having a meal and sitting out in her gazebo and watching the, the sun set and paint its colors on the San de Cristo and the moon rise over behind the mountains. And her last moments in life, you know, she asked her friends to wrap her up in a quilt and bring her out to watch the sunset and the moon rise. And she had a couch out on the on her little wooden gazebo there and had her home nurse and, you know, a circle of her very closest friends sitting with her. And she laid down on the couch and was quiet and and then she said um i'm sending this prayer to you from the moon and there was a little silence and then she went to sleep and they all sat and that was the moment that was the last thing that she said and uh so as i was doing all these drawings working creating these cellular forms um i actually went to an exhibition at sandler hudson and there was an artist um that had all these moon drawings, all these paintings. Um, Huff, Sandra, I can't think of her name. Schuff, Michelle Schuff. Mm. Michelle Schuff, yeah. And so, and she was really inspired by the eclipse. I think she had been a resident at the Hambridge Center and, you know, been a part of this whole eclipse. And so I kept looking at these moons and I went home and I was doing my circle drawings, you know, as a meditation that I would do in the evening and, or in the morning, or whenever I felt like it. And, and all of a sudden, I started formulating these cells into these moon forms. And I started thinking about this moment of the rising of the moon, you know, the setting of the sun, the rising of the moon, and started thinking about, those are my mom's last words. And she was ready to go, right? And that this back to this Sufi concept or philosophy of like the celebration of space and time and life as opposed to, and this cycle, like a beginning of a cycle. And I started to get curious, like, well, how to celebrate that moment, right? And my mom used to always say, Karina, you know, do what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy, you know? And as honored as I am to have been able to be given some of the commissions, you know, I really wanted to be in that space where I had an idea and I let the next idea happen inside of my own creative process. And I longed for that space of just building this body of work. And I, I, I made a declaration to myself to, to do what made me happy, you know, and I really felt like painting, right? Yeah. And I wanted to be in that space of an artist, right? <clears throat> and I created some structures. I had a, a group that um, myself and a few people put together that was a critique group. 
if you noticed in the rest of the gallery in Mason Fine Art, I think I mentioned in our in our conversation. Mm-hmm. So there's six other artists, a total of six, that um, were my critique group. So every second Tuesday, we'd get together. And, you know, I was doing all these paintings, these little circular cellular drawings and lunar drawings. And one day, my critique group said, Karina, you've got to murder the lovelies. <clears throat> oh, I hated hearing that, right? I was like frozen. I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm trying to paint. I'm trying to make work that people can relate to, right? Mm-hmm. That they, there's an access, there's an avenue for anyone to go into and be in that space of meditation, be in their own, bring their own life to it, right? Like I don't want, like on my thesis committee, I remember them saying to me one day, Karina, what's so important about your story? What about other people's story, right? And I've taken that to heart in my work. Like, yes, I'm going to deal with my own stuff, right? Back to you mentioned about Kirsten or right. a parent's death. And so it's always been my goal as I create this work to have my process, right? And have that be what I'm dealing with, but, but for, to have that access for somebody else to come into the work with their own space, their own emotion. Um, and so having this critique group was great because I had the sounding board, <clears throat> but after they said, you've got to murder the lovelies, you know, I, I went, I didn't make any work for a little bit cause I didn't know what to do. And then one day I had this copper pigment and I just did these works on paper um, they led to the works on paper that are in there, and they were the opening for the triptych that's that's there, that really that's on the invitation, that piece, uh, um, Celestial Bodies. And um, I was also working with, so I also work with uh, Spellman. You asked me about my university affili- mm-hmm. affiliates, affiliations. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> you know, since grad school, I've worked with um, UGA. I got hired um, at at SCAD um, to teach at SCAD and worked with their grad students there. You know, a few years later, I got asked to come back to Georgia State and teach a few classes. And then I think I had a couple years where I wasn't university affiliated. And a couple years ago, I got invited to uh, be sabbatical replacement to at at, um, at Spelman. And then they rehired me. I'm on my third semester at Spelman. Nice. But I was working with the graduate students also. And I, I learned while writing my thesis to take a few words that were important to you and then... Um, kind of work with the thesaurus, you know, write these words down, and then what's the next word, and the next word. So a lot of the titles come from me doing that searching around this work that that I was doing and how to speak about the work, right? Ambrosial and ascension, right? <laughs> Transcendence. So how to talk about the work and how to create the work in such a way, you know, and one of my goals, well, something that happened was I shifted my studio practice. Um... I would go out and look at art, and maybe 10 o'clock I'd head back to my studio and, and dive into the work. I call the work, um, the process of the work, midnight dreaming. Mm. And uh, while I was at the Hambage Center, there's an artist that I love listening to while I'm working. She, um, she's named Maclete. Mm-hmm. She plays this Ethio jazz is the type, right, type of art. And there was this song that kept coming up. I had sort of limited work um, songs I had downloaded from, like, my Pandora or whatever. But somehow this 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 McCleat would always come up, and there was this Midnight Dreaming song. And so I started thinking of the work in that sense because there's this sort of timeless space of meditation, you know. And the Dalai Lama speaks about um, flow, right? And it could be like a scientist creating... Um, 
experiments and you think you're going to work for a couple hours and all of a sudden it's five hours later, but you don't realize till you look at the clock, right? Because you're in that flow. And as a painter, right? Or as a sculptor or a, a writer, you know, sometimes you get in that space of flow. And, you know, according to the holiness, the Dalai Lama, he considers that one of the highest forms of meditation. So many of these pieces of work are very meditative in that sense. And, you know, my studio is at the goat farm. And uh, you can work very late, but then all of a sudden, you know, 4.30 in the morning, the roosters start crowing and you realize it's actually <laughs> early. <laughs> so I, I call that process midnight dreaming nice. of being in that flow, right? That meditative state. Well, thanks so much for sharing with me mm. and for having me into your studio. I know you had a crazy busy long day, so I really appreciate it. Yes. Yeah. And thank you for inviting me to, to have this conversation. Um, uh, I'm really pleased to, to be able to be in dialogue with you and, and share about this work. Thanks. That was a fun chat. Thanks again to Karina Sephora for having me in her studio to talk shop. We actually ended up hanging out into the evening meeting up with some folks at an opening at Hathaway Gallery in their new space. Love hanging with the Atlanta arts community. So much fun and some really interesting work happening. Y'all can still go check out the results of Karina Sephora's Midnight Dreaming at Mason Fine Art, her show Between the Deep Blue Sea and the Universe, along with the exhibition that she curated of artists from the Goat Farm, is up until February 16th. She will also be giving an artist talk this Saturday, February 9th, at Mason Fine Art from noon to 1.30, so y'all should definitely go and check that out. You can find images and links related to today's episode, along with a summary and excerpt on the Peachy Keen page of my website at vivianliddell.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or donating to our Patreon page. Again, the link is on the Peachy Keen page of VivianLiddell.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm headed to Chattanooga soon to hang an exhibition at Versa Gallery, so I'm hoping to get some Tennessee artists on board for an upcoming episode, maybe the next one, maybe the one after that, just flying by the seat of my pants here. So Chattanooga folks, get ready. Until then, I hope you guys are all hanging in there and that your days are peachy keen.